0: Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the August 14th, 2018 edition of Ask a Leader. It's 84 days until the general midterm election. Primaries are being held today in Connecticut, Minnesota, Vermont, and Wisconsin. I'm adding to my summoning voters to vote and turn out your friends to vote, that voters confirm first your registration. Oh, and the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation hearings are set to begin September 4th, hmm, right after Labor Day. As for guests today, Ask a Leader offers a warm and anteater welcome to our brand new dean of UCI School of Humanities, Tyrus Miller. Let us listen to him make the cases for a more perfect union the humanities way. Then, keeping the civilization theme going in the second segment is Craig Turrell. Artistic Director of Wayward Artist Productions, who will present his inestimable theater in beautiful downtown Santa Ana. Before we go to a break, I'd like to introduce... Jordan Brody. He's going to be doing a show. He's on an intern round. Jordan, how's it going?
1: I'm pretty good. How are you? Oh,
0: I, well, it's not about me. It's about you. So <laughs> you're going to do a PA show? What are you going to talk about?
1: Um, I'm thinking I want to do a show about entrepreneurs um, where I interview local um, mom and pop shop owners and local politicians and stuff like that.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, some of that's getting covered. You can listen to how it's being done and maybe <laughs> do them better and uh, always enjoying the ride. The radio waves are such a privilege. <laughs> Okay, folks, we'll be right back after a short station break with Dean Miller. Welcome back to the show. My guest is Tyrus Miller, newly appointed dean of UCI's School of Humanities. He's joined UCI this summer after almost 20 years at UC Santa Cruz, where he served most recently as vice provost and dean of graduate studies. While at UC Santa Cruz, he directed the UC Study Center in Budapest, Hungary, which focused on Central European history, economics, law, ethnography, art, history, film, and media, and speaks and reads French, German, Hungarian, and Italian. And as I say with um, uh, polyglots, I say, but we'll be conducting this interview in English. He has written four books on the mid-20th century period, most recently Modernism and the Frankfurt School. He previously taught at Yale University, completed his Bachelor of Arts and Master's Arts in Humanities, at Johns Hopkins University, then his Ph.D. in English at Stanford University. The UCI School of Humanities, where uh, Tyrus Miller assumes the helm of the following, 22 majors, 35 minors, ranging from English, history, and philosophy to Middle East studies and literary journalism, and 10 research centers. That include the Samuel Center, the Jordan Center for Person Studies and Culture, the Latin American Studies Center, the Center for Critical Korean Studies, and the Center for Jewish Studies. His rich, formative, familial, and professional experiences inform the path he's poised to steer as dean at UCI in all its interdisciplinary glory. Moreover, behold his prodigious tweets to see his range and depth of living the humanities. Dean Tyrus Miller joins me today in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader and to Orange County as well, Tyrus Miller.
1: Good morning. Happy to be here.
0: Well, as I prepared for this interview, everywhere I turned, in a daily newspaper, a good one, really good, some really good ones, everything relates back. It draws on the aspect of the humanities. I don't want this to sound like a Sasha Baron Cohen piece, but in all earnestness, what is your elevator speech for pitching the importance of humanities on a University of California campus in 2018?
1: Okay, well, I I think the fundamental thing about the humanities is the humanities study the ways in which we take our given world and make it human, make a make a human-made world and not just a human-made world in the sense of Buildings and structures and so forth, although that's very important, architecture and our ways of living, our practices of living, but also very importantly, it's a meaningful world. Human beings have a stake in the meanings that we create, that we change, that our cultures uh, give us, and those are the basic objects of the humanities. There's no question that the meaningfulness of human life together as collectives, nations, uh, communities, as well as individuals, um, our existential meanings remain eternally relevant, and therefore the the scholarship in the humanities really remains relevant despite very consequential changes, uh, changes in the framework of the sciences, of the disciplines. At root, the humanities are the stake in the question of human meaning, and they remain relevant for our 21st century, for our 22nd century, for our, hopefully we'll make it to the 28th century. But I think that the humanities will help to contribute to that uh, survival and that adaptation uh, if we do make it that far.
0: Well, full disclosure, I have a bit of a bias about the contribution of humanities. Where I went to undergraduate, we had a six-semester requirement of interdisciplinary humanities. I mean, they, they pretty much kept it interdisciplinary to that charter, some more than others. But what is exactly the general ed requirement for humanities at UCI?
1: Well, I, I for the for the actual requirements, I would uh, refer people to the website. But I do want to mention our uh, humanities core program, which is one of the ways in which students can actually meet many of the general ed requirements. Um, we have many, many students who come through the humanities core program. That's a program where there is a theme that's chosen um, for a period of time. The various uh, lectures and sessions and so forth relate to that theme, and students get a kind of coherent um, framework in which to explore the basic questions of the humanities, um, as well as get an introduction to the kinds of skills that they need to be able to succeed at the university, that is, free discussion in the classroom. Writing uh, skills, argumentation, logical skills. So it's a very coherent package that we give. Uh, it really is community building for students, um, intellectual community as well as personal community. And I think it's a it's a marvelous program where we really do help to fulfill the general education requirements of the university.
0: It was a pleasure having David Penn on some years ago to talk about that. It was really a delight. Well, as as an undergraduate majoring in science, you took. The off ramp with an inspiring humanities course. It was a twentieth-century art, literature, and culture course across Europe. And you see, was that a general ed requirement, or were you just intellectually curious at that point when you were registering for classes?
1: Well, kind of a combination. So I started out uh, at Johns Hopkins University as a biophysics major. I was very strongly interested in science. I wanted to, I was actually interested in neuroscience. So I was interested in the brain, okay. which is an area that has really taken off uh, since then. Uh, it would have been an v- exciting alternative career for me. Um, but I was already in high school, uh, very interested in music. I was a performer. Yeah. Um, I was a bass player and a guitar player in the entire range from classical to jazz and rock, um, and I was uh, interested in studying composition. I was also reading poetry at that time, so I had those interests in in nucleus. Uh, but I but I wasn't yet really thinking of that as my my academic path. I took a course uh, in my first uh, semester at Johns Hopkins on Yeats, Pound, and Eliot the three great uh, modernist poets with a very famous uh, uh, Pound Pound and Joy scholar. And he really inspired me in a way that precipitated a bit of a crisis because I was still very committed to the path that I had chosen, but I I went eventually into the history department and then found this interdisciplinary honors major um, in the humanities, which really allowed me a free scope to be able to explore, to take a few graduate seminars while I was still an undergraduate. So that really um, set me on my path and uh, really set me on a lifelong commitment to the humanities.
0: Well, as a complete non-professional, I can just, though, see, I can trace the straight through line from jazz to joy so that none of this comes to me as any, like, really breakthrough I can see. So, new and exciting directions as the brass rolled out your appointment. What does that mean to you? What's your vision specifically for humanities at UC Irvine?
1: Well, one of the things that I want to really make clear is we have a fabulous uh, faculty, fabulous set of departments. So one of the things that I really want to do is make sure everybody knows that, um, to really trumpet the things that we're doing, to... Help to explain and bridge the gap between specialized scholarship in the humanities and the the general public. But for that reason, um, communication is very important to me. It's one of the reasons why uh, I'm being interviewed on your radio station is because of that commitment. So that's one thing that I would that I would say. Also, um, from my background, as as you've heard. I have a very broad set of interests, and that helps me as a dean to understand the different uh, work that's going on in this very diverse and very big school. Uh, But I also have a commitment to help to catalyze interdisciplinary conversations where the limits of particular frameworks or of geographical, cultural, linguistic uh, frameworks can begin to be bridged and um, some sort of higher... Uh, vision come out of that. I really have uh, personally experienced the way in which different disciplinary approaches, different linguistic approaches um, inform each other. And I'd like to see the extent to which we can make that really a signature aspect of the school. It really already is in a a lot of ways. Our departments, many of our departments are explicitly framed as studies, African-American studies, Asian-American studies, gender and sexuality studies that are explicitly interdisciplinary. But I would really say all of our Uh, all of our faculties, um, even in departments that have a more traditional framing, like an English department, there's an extraordinary level of interdisciplinary scholarship going on in those departments.
0: And so how, in light of the the school's scarce resources and their shrinking, um, the heavy emphasis is on the sciences. How are you addressing the competition for those scarce resources here to get, make UCI as shiny as all the other shiny optics? (laughs)
1: Well, um, I think that, uh, first of all, I see a lot of opportunity for partnership with the sciences, with the technical fields, um, with the professional fields. So I don't see it as a zero-sum situation. No. Okay, um, great the, you
0: say it that way. I'm always looking for where that frame is really limiting uh, the good, the wide-open thinking here.
1: I mean, a couple of examples that I can point to that really have concrete uh, dimensions already are we have an, um, an important new medical humanities program. And the medical humanities, this comes back really to that question of human meaning. Um, We know that the medical experience is not just a matter of what chemicals you take or what surgical interventions you have or what technology you're hooked up to when you're in the hospital. A lot of it is a very human exchange. There's an interpretive process that goes on. Uh, You have the ability as a patient to speak back, to help to describe what's happening to you and also to interpret what's meaningful about your experience of life, death, aging, sickness, health. And the medical humanities really looks at the stories that we tell, that dimension of meaning, that dimension of human interaction, and also the ethical questions. We know that medicine has the ability to sustain biological life well beyond the realm of what we would call a meaningful human life, and there are real questions posed by that borderline. Medical Humanities helps to study that. One other example that I want to point to also is the collaboration with the School of the Arts around uh, the project for uh, California Museum of Arts. Um, The arts obviously are key in this, the arts school obviously key in this and playing a leading role, But we also want to have a research institute that is associated with the fabulous California collection, and we'll be looking at it in an interdisciplinary way. Obviously, art history, but also film and media studies, history, Asian American studies, African American studies, gender and sexuality all inform this question of what California is, who California is, what we want California to be, and how that's reflected in our expressive media.
0: Well, I always I do think of though the humanities element of an ethics when I attend symposia on engineering smart metering and i'm waiting for those engineers to raise their hand and say but do i want the whole world to know when i turn the ac on in my bedroom on a weekday afternoon i mean if this smart metering has huge ethical consequences so i'm always thinking where we've got to bridge this cuz i or the the ethics of extracting materials for the next latest tech device to be adopted. So it, it's, I'm reminded, it's not just those daily newspapers, but it, it's under every rock you're on campus.
1: If I could just jump in on Would that. Would you I, jump in? I'm, I'm
0: going to go back to tech in a bigger way, but that's an, well, on a campus way.
1: I attended an event one time on on the question of big data. and it had are you are at every, Santa
0: Cruz in the Silicon uh, Valley in area? In Silicon
1: Valley, yes. Okay, you're right there. And it had everyone from people on the investment side who were investing in big data companies to people from NASA and uh, wow. engineers who were working on storage. And so how far forth.
0: back was that? That was definitely c- place it one year about a
1: year and a half ago. Oh wow. And I was sitting in the audience and I could really hear a conversation that was circling around the question of okay we have big data. how do we how do we interpret this data in a way where we're not reading things into it but we're uh, also uh, discerning meaningful patterns that may be hidden. I immediately thought this is a problem that really the humanities have dealt with for actually centuries. Centuries. Um, It's an interpretive problem of how do you approach a text, for instance? How do you find symbolism? How do you find meaning? How do you uh, synthesize that? Are there hidden patterns that you're just projecting into it? There's hundreds, literally hundreds of years of discussion of these kinds of questions, and I really believe humanists could be at the table. Um, to really help solve these questions which are really pressing. The big data algorithms are being applied very broadly and we're only really starting to come to understand the ways in which this is really shaping our world without those questions of interpretation being fully discussed and, uh, and criticized, in many cases these are proprietary, so we don't even have access. Right. Um, and there's certainly ethical questions to consider there. Um, I, the other thing that was really interesting about this encounter, there was a scientist there, but he was from Latin America, he was from Argentina, and he um, mentioned explicitly in relation to this question of interpretation the, uh, the, the Argentine writer Borges, um, t- where he was really seeing the application of literary text and a, and a really brilliant thinker about the question of data and meaning, um, Borges, uh, he was really uh, also perceiving that. So a literate scientist actually uh, thinking in literary terms to think through a scientific and, t- and technical issue.
0: Well, I just want to call out, though, your neuroscience Aspect as an undergrad—that's part of like a whole portfolio that enriches, informs you about how to. Okay, uh, informs you to see those opportunities to expand the critical yeah. thinking.
1: I, you know, it's also true that in my in my last nine years I've been a graduate dean and I've been, I was responsible for all the PhD and master's programs across the campus including our sciences and engineering as well as arts, social sciences and humanities and I obviously I can't, certainly can't be an expert, I, I have a a surface level understanding of these of these disciplines, but I also am comfortable with conversation of where I can ask questions that are meaningful, and I'm not afraid of the sciences or engineering. I don't see them as our as our enemy. I see them as partners, and I think that the humanities should be confident in understanding that we have a contribution to a campus that is rightly science and uh, engineering-rich. That's an asset of the campus. It's also an asset of the campus that we have such a strong and large humanities program.
0: For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask Leader here on Radio (coughs) KUCI. My guest is the brand-new dean of humanities, Tyrus Miller. We're talking right now about well, actually, all things considered, in the interdisciplinary aspect, both of what humanities provides on the campus, and as he mentioned, in a, at a, I would love to have been in that meeting in Silicon Valley a year and a half ago. So I'm personally acquainted with the firepower on this campus. I don't know everybody on humanities, but the ones I've met really blow my mind, and I'm I'm just sort of um, I just need to say how. Your faculty reaches people. I don't know what their majors were, but, you know, the, it, one, One, I'm going to quote a couple of, of appraisals. A particular one, I'm not going to mention who. The the pronoun may come out, but I'm just going to just leave the, the prof blind here. Inspires, <laughs> challenges, and encourages all students to learn and participate. This person is one of the top professors at UCI and sets high standards from day one. Teaching style is provocative, fun, and never sacrifices in quality. Teaches you about life too. Most intellectually daring class I've ever taken so that's one person i didn't go and look at all my you know i'm such a groupie for these faculty here Is it's that, wonderful to hear but it's i mean that's just one and so it's and i think you're uh, you know that you're only limited by how many you're acquainted with but you you met them in the search committee and i mean you've given you're giving me like almost three quarters of an hour today and that's a little less time to get to know your faculty <laughs> but it's really phenomenal and who wants to deprive Schools, A, B, C, D, apart from humanities, of this kind of intellectual firepower. It's got, it's, these, this person that's made, these three people that made this appraisal, they are different human beings from now on after taking that person's courses. So, I, actually, I really do want to know, how much autonomy do deans have and what do you think is the right amount? So
1: if I understand your question, it's a question of how much responsibility and how much decision-making authority deans have. My observation here at UCI is it's relatively a lot. UCI is really organized around schools, and deans are the head of the schools. And in that sense, there's quite a bit of responsibility and authority that's invested in deans. Now, let me qualify that a little bit. Deans are leaders of very complex organization with a lot of different interests. Also in general, and I rightly so, faculty are very powerful voices on the campus. Students are powerful voices on the campus. But especially faculty, we have at UC uh, faculty co-governance. And there is a lot of explicit formal decision-making authority that's invested in the Academic Senate and therefore in the faculty of UCI. And that's a limit on the decision making power and authority of, of deans. So at best, at the in the best situation, faculty and deans are in a very ongoing open conversation and dialogue about what are our priorities and our goals. Um, there's a clear understanding of what the author- relative authorities of the faculty, the academic senate, and the deans are, and we're really working together to achieve the goals of the school. And of UCI and of our of our uh, campus community, including most importantly our uh, undergraduate and graduate students.
0: So, the humanities—I would call uh, sort of the blind spot of tech titans and the tech sector, who they wield an inordinate amount of power. What um, would you comment on that?
1: Well, a couple things I would I, I find the metaphor of the blind spot interesting because on the one hand, we know how important the humanities were in making the tech industry what the tech industry is. There's a very significant amount of aesthetics. When we pull uh, yes. out our iPhone, that was not simply a technical achievement. It's a it's an aesthetic intuition about what would be something that we like to hold, that we like to play with, that's gonna be useful. And we know for instance, I mean it's a almost a bit of a cliche, but Steve Jobs' interests went well beyond...
0: Well, he, was in, he had, took calligraphy when he that's, was, that's I don't right. know, an adolescent or something, And right? he's not
1: unique in that respect. Right. Okay. Many, of the, many of the leaders in the tech industry, CEOs, um, people who are involved with putting together the amazing innovation teams, really have a humanities background. And there's been more and more discussion, not just in humanities-related publications, but I'm talking Forbes, Wall Street Journal, and so forth, about the importance of the liberal arts, of a kind of interdisciplinary breadth in terms of humanistic intuitions about what's going to be meaningful, what's going to be aesthetically pleasing, how important that is for success in the tech industry. So in that sense, there's a bit of a blind spot in which we think tech automatically translates only into engineering expertise, whereas there's a very considerable dimension of that humanistic uh, domain of meaning in the technical artifact. But I also think that you're pointing to something about the question of ethics and yes. the political implications, the, the implications for very basic humanistic conceptions of things like freedom, personal autonomy, uh, choice— those privacy. Privacy. Um, our sense of private and public is really being shaped, especially by social media, but also by other technical phenomena like surveil. You know the pervasiveness of surveillance and information gathering. So those are areas where I think that there's a considerable space for more critical discussion, for more public discussion, more public information, and more ethically informed conversation. About the limits of, of tech and the implications of tech for our personal lives, and even when we, when we begin to get into questions of especially biotechnical aspects, medicine, the supplementation of human capacities by by technology, I was looking for artificial
0: a word. intelligence artificial artificial, artificial intelligence
1: and, the mm-hmm. and uh, you know mechanical enhancement of the body. Those sorts of things really fundamentally go to the root of what we think of as human life. And we better be prepared to think about what we consider to be meaningful, what we consider to be good and bad um, in those fundamental moral judgments about what we are willing to accept. And I have to say that I think that there, this comes back to your metaphor of the blind spot, I think there's a severe deficit of that kind of reflection where technology is leading and reflection is running at best, you know, feebly behind that, that breakneck uh, development of technology.
0: And I say in of power because there's so much capital, there's so much assets and capital that the tech titans have and that can distort greatly. Uh, the, the discussion, the critical thinking discussion of what is, what is acceptable in that sector.:
1: Yeah, I think that the tech industries um, concentrate two very, very, very consequential human questions right now. One is the question of technology and the boundary between what we think of as our machines or our, our technology and our ourselves both collectively and individually. That's one question. And then the other really is this fundamental question of the way in which the current economic developments, and the org- they're not simply economic, they're organizational, you know, they're questions of how work gets done, how those really are affecting a much broader sphere of daily life, of um, what we think of as our leisure time our meaningful uh, interactions those sorts of things and again i think humanistic reflection on that and and in many cases critique is necessary if we're going to adapt to what is definitely a fantastic and but very accelerated very rapid and i think unreflected development of Technology and the organizational forms that are related to technology.
0: I'm glad you bring up that organizational form because it, <laughs> it's so insidious we don't even recognize it, and it's totally shuffled our daily decks there. Well, humanities being somewhat of an office, the home office, the mainstay of critical thinking and nuance, it's engendering mistrust from what I would call conservative parents. I'm reading about it, and I'm, I've also witnessed it. They're questioning... College. They're they're talking about they're questioning college educated offspring. I attended a conference recently, uh, a political convention, and the participants were ruin losing the second generation of immigrants uh, in saying the the quote was they're learning to hate America. This is like one person talking about their son went to Stanford and learned to hate America, and uh, I'll try to shoehorn the seat the the in that same caucus. Then the next. Person, participant said, in quote, I never forgot, I mean, I'm doing justice to this discussion, An American education is absolute poison. You have a lot to to deal with in maintaining the critical thinking, making the case The critical thinking isn't a political bias, it's just nuanced thinking.
1: Yes. To I've, order. I, I agree. I mean, I think it's a very unfortunate thing uh, Thing that has happened fairly recently. I think for a very long time there was a consensus from whatever place on the political spectrum, at least within the legitimate political spectrum, that um, higher education was something that we actually converged on was a positive for American life and for our American polity and for mm. individuals, uh, individual Americans. I think it's a phenomenon of recent politics and, and recent media that a certain kind of criticism of the university institution and university education has become instrumentalized as um, an element of political discussion. And I don't necessarily think that's solely on the right. I think it's something that we're really seeing a broad polarization and questioning of the good of the university, the good of higher education uh, more broadly. I want to go back to really fundamental principles, which is that that I think that we were founded as a nation of diverse opinions, of uh, public debate, of the role of critical thinking in our public life. And the university still serves that, that goal. So if someone is really raising the question of whether that model of public debate public discussion critical examination of one's conscience and of the um, materials that you're reading or hearing those are things that i would defend to the end and say that someone is wrong if they're not uh, willing to accept that fundamental principle what i would say is that we want to really make clear the way that the university relates to that and helps to train people for that and uh, empowers people to be full voices in that public sphere and that, that space of public debate. Critical thinking and questioning authority is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's what feeds our democracy and I would uh, assert that against anyone that wants to uh,
0: take that down. So speaking of materials in the classroom, I think just Changing from the secondary tertiary material in a history class and moving to the primary source, that we've now we've entered in some areas where we're rethinking you know what really happened in New England in the seventeenth century, and that you know we, we we did some rethinking of Thanksgiving on this show, and so that there's a kind of mythology that's sort of considered owned on one end of the political spectrum, but we're not by moving from a secondary tertiary. Literary uh, source to a primary is not a radical thing. It's it's demythologizing what those pilgrims were really expecting when they came over, and so that, it, you make a great point about material, and it, it it isn't political. It's it's just intellectual honesty.
1: Well, I also think um, that one of the really fundamental differences of the humanities as a as a set of uh, scholarly disciplines. Is the importance of history to them um, yes. really? It's, yes. a, it's a shared base for many, many of the humanities disciplines, if not all. And one of the things that our that the study of history tells us is that history is a messy and ambiguous space, and therefore we need to actually um, examine it and we need to discuss it. And also that that history gets reinterpreted over periods of time as we change and as we adapt. Also, I think uh, one of the things that's interesting with respect to looking at history is uh, education, higher education in the United States also has a history, and it's always been a domain of controversy, of criticism, of claims that it's going down the tubes, of people who have criticized it fundamentally, the way that it's been structured. And higher education has changed uh, very you know enormously over over our history as a nation, and those debates really constantly accompany that change and I think we're in a moment where uh, higher education is adapting to a new social space to new technologies and so forth, and we're going through that debate. I don't think that's a bad thing
0: so along with that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to Consider here on the show the mounting complications of free speech and First Amendment challenges on college campuses.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a tricky issue. And I know that our chancellor has uh, been very involved in this, co-authored a book with the former uh, law school dean. Right, right. And um, it's also been something that in the School of Humanities, the Forum for the Academy and the Public has also staged um, a number of events and is really looking to some further events that will be a uniquely humanistic perspective on, on that question. Again, I think that we have a important contribution to make as humanists to the history of this question to the interpretation and also for the underlying the underlying ethical basis of the notions of free speech we're talking about the notion of the autonomy of the person the freedom of the person the conscience of the person these were f- these were formative values for our founding fathers and for the enlightenment that they came out of And free speech, the notion of free speech is really rooted in that. So we have to really return to those fundamental notions and ask what they mean for us today. And I think that's an important context for the question of free speech. Obviously, there are legal scholarship questions about how to interpret the Constitution, but there's also a broader question of our Constitution rests on a set of values and on a set of concepts that we, as I said, inherited from the Enlightenment, but that have really changed over time and that we're being asked to consider, reflect on, and adapt to the circumstances of the 21st century and I think it's on that basis that we can really come to a workable and satisfactory answer to the sorts of dilemmas and, and questions of balance that we have with respect to the First Amendment rights.
0: So in the interest of the very limited time that we have, I'm, I'm going to have to collapse a few questions. As You've expressed that, quote, I'm quoting you, this is the most exciting time ever to be a scholar, student in the humanities, and yet the public discourse in the humanities is often on crisis or learned irrelevance. You sort of mentioned a little bit about that. So what do you take from your previous administrative experience what lessons you've learned and how how are you going to put that to use in making UCI's School of Humanities stand out amidst the strong programs at UC Santa Barbara, LA, and, and San Diego?
1: Well, I mean, I'm going to, over the next several months, really be getting to know the, the school in, in great depth. Um, but one of the things that I can say that I'm really excited about, I've already mentioned, yes. is the depth of of interdisciplinary scholarship. We have really interesting programs. As a faculty member, I'm actually a part of, for instance, our visual studies graduate programs. That's a, a, a collaboration between film and media studies and art history so it's really looking at partially art historical objects, but in the media context that is really part of our contemporary world. Uh, it also looks at the broad importance of visual images and visual experience in our contemporary world. Uh, so that's a very exciting program. And that's just one example. But I really want to, one, be able to speak with great confidence and, you know, forthrightness in every context that I can find about our strengths um, in that, and I also want to think about ways in which I can help to catalyze and strengthen those uh, those interdisciplinary uh, ties. I think our humanities commons, which is really a research hub, an activity hub, a programming hub. Um, is a fabulous example of things that we that we've already done in this direction, and I want to really look at that and think about the ways in which we can strengthen that and raise the profile of that amazing activity that's just bubbling on all sides in the School of Humanities.
0: Well, anecdotally, uh, judging from the kind of reception I'm getting about your appointment, you've got lots of tailwinds right now. You've got so with the the dean post being a complicated leadership post. I think you've got lots going on. They're, they're all really rallying for you. It's a, it's a marvel to see. Well,
1: well, I'm hoping to keep flying and, it, uh, yeah, and, and really catch that tailwind. No,
0: no chemtrails, please. <laughs> Faculty listening, so, for now. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time today to being at the show. Thank you. Thank you. My guest is Tyrus Miller. He is the new Dean of Humanities. We'll return after a short break with Craig Terrell. He is the Artistic Director of the Wayward Artist Productions. Stay close. Thank you for staying tuned. That's Evelyn Glennie, and the track is El Dorado. Welcome back to Ask a Leader. My second guest today is Craig Terrell. He's Artistic director of the Wayward Artist, the Productions. It's inaugurated this last January in Santa Ana. Craig began a professional acting, directing, and teaching career after having completed his Master's of Fine Arts. He earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Philosophy at the Richard Stockton College of New Jersey and his Master's of Arts in Theology at Villanova University. He currently teaches beginning actors at Cal State University Fullerton as well as Shakespeare for the actor and script analysis. As an actor, he most his most memorable role was as Evan in Teresa Rebick's adaptation of A Dollhouse for which he was nominated. The uh, Actors, A-C-T-F, that's
2: the College American College Theater American, Festival. Okay, for Kennedy regional, Centers. Yeah.
0: Okay, for a regional festival, as a co-director, he received the Kennedy Center American College Theater. Oh, there it is. It's been <laughs> uh, posted twice there uh, for outstanding direction of the musical Godspell. Cal State University Fullerton's 2014 University Creative Activity Research Award, 2015 Perth Fringe Festival Critics' Choice Award for his direction of Eleanor's Story, An American Girl Living in Nazi Germany, and Cal State University Fullerton's 2016 Outstanding Nomination. Here's what his students at Cal State Fullerton have said about him. Oh my gosh, where'd you get this? Well, I I was sort of like, once I started, then I had to check out some evaluations of humanities professors just to sort of... endorse their worth uh, campus-wide. But here's what they said, quote, the most amazing teacher you will ever have. Next quote, I don't think that I'll ever be able to explain to Craig how much he means to me. He's an incredible person. Next, a very inspirational professor. Now, I recently met, I'm not quoting but I'm quoting me now. I recently met Craig after taking in a riotous rendering of William Shakespeare's Twelfth Night, A Galactic Farce. And man, was that farce with us. <laughs> he joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask Leader Craig Turrell.
2: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: Well, we'll start with you talking about what is the mission at Wayward
2: Artists. The Wayward Artist is to provide a home for the wayward artist, the lost, the naked, the vulnerable, to produce wayward work of the highest quality, works forgotten, works reinvented, works unknown, and to transform a wayward world, its arrogance, its ignorance, its complacency. That is our mission.
0: Wow. And you're getting that done in Santa Ana. We've got to make sure there's a big banner flying outside that theater so it's never, never missed. Yes. We don't want anybody missing out on that. For sure. Well, and the name you chose is that. You, did you just state in another way what wayward means?
2: Well, I tell you, you know, it sounds cliche, but in some ways, it nah. did come to me in a dream. Oh. You know, the the word wayward. And then I looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary and uh, found all sorts of definitions from sort of lost, prone against authority, doing your own thing. And uh, we thought, wow, we could play with this word. And, and then just the wayward artist came, and out of that came the mission. And then once we had the mission, we had something to get behind and get excited about and have been working really hard over the last year and a half realizing this lifelong dream.
0: So with those intentions you have a presenting theater the sometimes the often body content and delivery. What kind of audience, Craig, are you targeting? Well, the
2: people of all types and all ages, um, you know, our crowd tends to be uh, a younger audience um, in some ways. Uh, we've got several different contingents that make up our audience. We've got our Cal State roots from Cal State Fullerton, that's always there. Um we're part of the arts district of downtown Santa Ana and uh so we're seeing lots of the Santa Ana community that attend the first Saturday art walks. And then there's lots of families that are living down in Santa Ana that so
0: Oh, you filled it up on yeah. a not first walk night. It was I, I think I went there on a it was a Wednesday or Thursday night—I can't remember exactly when. So. No, we our yeah, last we show. Full. We
2: were very privileged. Uh, you know, we sold out every audio, every show that of our entire run. So, but you know that that was twelfth night—a galactic farce, an R-rated Shakespeare with a lot of profanity and a you know and crazy, ridiculous farce. And uh, you had to be a fan of that kind of humor.
0: Well, it fit though. I mean, it wasn't like you were. It wasn't quite gratuitous. I don't know how you found the line. Thank
2: you very much. You know, it was placed in the Star Wars universe, and uh, and I'll tell, I'll I'll argue until I'm blue in the face that all those jokes were there, all that bodiness, all the sexual innuendo. It's there in the original Shakespeare. It's as crass and uh, you know as our production was. It's just we the the language four hundred years ago. We just don't appreciate it for what it was.
0: So, tell us then about the talent that you've recruited to perform at Wayward Artists for you.
2: Well, the we're, for the most part, an ensemble of Cal State Fullerton alumni. Uh, most of us are educators in our own right and professional working artists. And uh, my partner, our managing director, Kristen Campbell, she and I, when we began this a year and a half ago, we, we came up with a short list of people that we wanted to. To work with uh, collaborators that we had worked with before, and of course we needed to cover all our bases. We needed actors, we needed designers, we needed directors, uh, people with marketing experience, um, and so we just sort of plugged in all the holes and uh, and came up with uh, an ensemble of fifteen total, if you include our board of directors
0: and our. All the productions presented at the Grand Central Arts Center, where I saw you.
2: Yes, that is correct. Uh, um, Grand Central Arts Center, part of the arts district in Santa Ana. Um, that is that is our home. So temporary home. We don't know how long we're going to be there. Ultimately, we're going to look to expand one day. Um, so we're hoping five years is the time frame that we've given us. Um, the space is small and intimate, only seventy four seats um, but we are really, really proud and fortunate to be there. I hope you're really get happy,
0: Terrence. Dwyer over there. Have him sit in there so he can figure out what venue he wants to put you in, the Segerstrom uh, performance. Oh, thank
2: you so much. Thank you. Yes. You do
0: that. Yes. That, make that happen. All right. Well, for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Craig Terrell. He's Artistic Director of the Wayward Artists, the productions of which are based there in San and the Grand Central Art Center. As I mentioned, Maria Maria, a cabaret is being performed this week. I shill away uh, shamelessly. This week, if you're listening live, August 16th to 18th, and you're at, at at 125 North Broadway Correct. in Santa Ana. So Maria Maria is on tap this week. What do you want to say yeah, about that?
2: We, we open on Thursday. Um, it is, uh, we're co-producing that work. Um, it is a two-woman cabaret. They are... Generations Apart, Exploring Sisterhood, uh, it's got a strong activism in there. They're do- donating all their box office to a wonderful charitable organization, Two. the New Outlook Center, hmm. helping immigrant families and underprivileged minorities. So it, they're both professional artists in their own right. Well, one's a professional opera singer, the other's a professional actress, full professor as well. And it's just a really, really lovely, touching evening uh, with two strong female voices. Um, would uh, love for you to come support that. I'm coming. Good. You just yes. Pers-
0: you just persuade me. I want to find out more about New Outlook Center. They may want to come over yeah. to this neck of the woods. Too. Nice. So then Faith, this was a big dance collaborative that you were looking forward to which will be presented in uh september, september 21 through the 30th correct so what do you want to tease us with on that
2: that thing? that's our uh, fall main stage production um our entire season is uh thematically called faith this is a really wonderful exciting production um a composer extraordinaire ryan wyman is composing brand new music in collaboration with our director of dance natalie baldwin uh, it's live music, a cello, a piano, and a violin in our small space. Oh,
0: I couldn't think of a better p-
2: Yeah, and if you've never if you've never experienced dance in this small venue like we have, it is quite moving, it's quite powerful, and they are telling the story of human faith. The existential search for meaning and truth, our alienation, our brokenness, our hopes, our fears, our salvation in some sense. Um with live music, brand new composed music, right born of this experience. So. You're gonna
0: put them I, I mean on the stage. You're on gonna the, be stage, off to yeah. the side, which is sort always of, a rich way to present yeah. mm-hmm. a collaboration like that. Oh my goodness. So uh, you, now you're challenging some of us are trying to work on that. That's like getting that's like the last hurrah before people do all their four courts press with the election. So okay. i then then you've got Corpus Christi. We're going to – the auditions are starting. I don't know if you want to – just like yeah, we're, calling, look, all, calling a, all people.
2: Calling all men. This Dudes is a all-male ensemble in this one. It's 13 uh, men. It's the story – we opened our season with Godspell, which is a traditional Jesus narrative, and we close our season with a little more controversial um, Jesus story, too. This was a wow. Corpus McNally play where – jesus or joshua in this case is a gay young man growing up in corpus christi texas so it's the jesus story but um jesus is a young gay man so this
0: isn't funny this is earnest
2: no this is this is serious it's it's still the same message of love and tolerance uh and the the radical persecution that he faces because of this message of love and tolerance but uh but it's the jesus story told in a unique and special kind of way so auditions I didn't on see this September coming, 4th
0: but i craig i hope you'll permit this of course this like total off-ramp question sure i have a theory i, I have binge watched with my daughter queer eye and i'm just wondering this may be corpus christi may be a very subversive play for people to rethink the 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 man yes so do you think that queer eye is a, a subversive kind of production to have people rethink that gays are, don't have fangs yeah,
2: yes, I would say that. I hate to date myself here, but the queer Eye I remember was the original. Right. Well, there's and, a whole uh, lot.
0: It's a whole new cast now, and I've heard wonderful things in about the it. South. Yeah. They're, they're they're based in Atlanta, and they go at all these Georgia backwoods places or a few suburbs. But I just keep thinking they must. There must be a real intent here to flip homophobia in certain pockets of America.
2: What did attract me to the play was that it was, again, challenging Mm -hmm. our uh, uh, Christian understanding and our Christian faith to uh, expand um, its understanding of uh, homosexuality.
0: Well, this is going to be very remarkable. And it, it will you. be. It's it As you audition, you are envisioning it will be at the, the Central yes, uh, Grand, Grand Central, Central, Central Art Center. Everything, as you said. So, as well, you have an improv theater. A word or two about what your Kickstarter campaign is drumming up to? So, uh, One,
2: well, two. Bis- Best Coast Improv on. is a th- uh, improv a uh, company that we are proud to host. Um, they're sort of like our child. They perform every first Saturday at Grand Central. It's part of the Arts Walk at Grand Central. Uh, oh, okay. Every first Saturday. Two shows, Harry P- Potter-themed show and the show must go on. Uh, and then our Kickstarter, which is always still going on. We we put in, lighting is very expensive. We put in $11,000 worth of new LED lighting and uh, and just paying off on that. Okay. The cost of that lighting is a Kickstarter campaign.
0: So what's the, what's the, um, what's the, the address? For? Well, the
2: best place to donate to the Wayward artist would be the org, and then there's the the lighting campaign you can donate through the website.
0: All right well, if my listeners know they'll find that. A reminder in the podcast summary. So awesome!
2: We well, are a five hundred one c three nonprofit. Okay, so.
0: very good. Well, I wish we had more time. I mean, that's it's a throwaway line. I'm sorry, I just used it, but it's a really remarkable find. I'm so glad for being hosted at your the production I was at, and I'm expecting to be a real regular kind of. A I prod- hope so. The, pl-
2: the pleasure is all mine, and this was the best thing I've done today.
0: Oh well, yeah, the exciting. Days, the day's a little on the early side. <laughs> so, well, Craig Tyrrell, thanks for coming to the studio with us today. So my uh, guest was Craig Terrell. He's artistic director of the Wayward Artists, the production of which are based in Santa at the Grand Central Arts Center. And Maria Maria Cabaret is being performed this week, as I mentioned. Uh, Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Well, I'm just going to give Jordan, who's been sitting quietly and patiently, Jordan Brody who's been uh, he's an intern and getting training here at KUCI so uh, what do you think now you just stared at the, all the the comings the goings on here
1: I really enjoyed today I learned a lot from the guests before and from Craig I actually heard Godspell was amazing I didn't go but I had a few people I knew who went and they loved it they thought it was amazing I actually want to know more about the audition. Okay, September well, we 4th.
0: can do that right after the show here. we got to give the DJ after me a little chance to do that. So, uh, as I said, this is my wrap. Next week, I'll have on Jane Stover of UCI's Law School and Julie Marzuk. She's formerly of Chapman University, and she's now a consultant, and they'll talk about all sides of the coin relating to the intersection of domestic violence and the White House immigration policy dealing with family separation. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone for listening.